welcome again to another episode of The Oceanal. We are going through a series entitled The Jesus Reveals the Eight Paths to Happiness and this is episode 11. So, guess where I am at? I don't think I need to tell you. Yeah, the weather is changing quite fast here in Michigan. It was uh, 80 something on Monday and today everybody's wearing coats and I'm wearing sweatpants because it's chilly. The air is crisp and that's one of the things I enjoy about the fall. The crisp air, uh, when the sun hits you though you do feel the warmth still and the beautiful change of colors Michigan does provide such an array of beautiful colors if you live in this state or any of those states I used to live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and afforded the same change of seasons. I hope you'll be able to enjoy uh, this beautiful scenery as you go outside. Especially I'm recording this on a Friday so hopefully you'll take time this weekend to go and enjoy some of nature. Anyways we're starting to get to the near the, the end of these eight paths to happiness that Jesus delineates for us and we've covered quite a bit of territory uh, beginning with the feeling of our need, sensing our need, mourning our lack of spiritual integrity, spiritual health, um, uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness and um, we understand now what that means, so that righteousness, so that justice, the forgiveness, the, the merciful forgiveness of God given to us by mercy. and. Now we're going to be looking at something that makes so much sense. I mean, when you first look at these, you do think that these are separate statements, but they're just one flow. And now we're starting to get, get to see some animation, as we talked in a previous episode of those little um, sheet drawings of a figurine in each page. You have a little bit different position, and when you flip the pages, it looks like animation. And now we're starting to see better the flow of this journey into happiness. So, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Which, when you look at all that, that we have covered, it makes sense. The pure in heart have not purified themselves. They have come to God to experience this purification. And of course, the purification is from things that uh, make us uh, impure, which is selfishness and pride, sin. God has given us justice, righteousness. He has cleansed us from our past records. He has taken away the sins from our lives that harmed us. One of the concerns that my wife and I have right now is the fact that our family in Puerto Rico, they've just been hit with a hurricane named Maria. And he has left the, the island in total disarray. My in-laws live there, the Lean's two sisters, and their husbands and children live there as well and of course the rest of the population and our concern is that the water is impure it's not fit to be drunk and uh, so the, the city shut, shut down the water they had water um, and they were able to actually share with some of their friends and neighbors who did not have water but now the city has completely turned off the water the idea is because of sanitation reasons the sewage treatment plants, they, they've become inundated and that water, that toxic water, goes into the 
the rest of the water streams no one ought to be drinking that water and it's going to take maybe weeks months who knows how long before they're able to once again provide safe water purity is a big deal when we have impurities uh, our concern is that those things could uh, make us sick and maybe even kill us so the pure of heart is not just something that is really nice to have you know i have a couple of you know salmonella and a little e coli floating here and there we don't we wouldn't drink water or eat vegetables that have our foods that are contaminated with those things what God doesn't want us to look at is God wants us to look at selfishness and pride with that same level of concern that same level of alert and yearn to have ourselves cleansed that's why the the language of Jesus is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for forgiveness for mercy for justice the justice needed not deserved because I'll grant it to them I'll grant them a pure life. I will forgive their past and impact them, impact their hearts. And we talked about how it, being merciful follows having received mercy from God. Now you are able to forgive the same way He is. And you can only forgive when humility and gentleness are now the governing principle in the heart. We still are in a learning process, don't get me wrong. This um, a process of this, the eight steps, the eight paths to happiness, it's an ongoing cycle. It is not a once done, let's move on to something better. Um, what we want to focus now is, and actually I, I'm thinking I'm going to spend this episode in both. The, the, this one and then the second to last um, declaration of the path to happiness. So right now we're talking about the importance of purity. And God says... Those individuals that have experienced purity in their hearts will see God. What does that mean, that they will see God? Well, at this point, we've gotten to see things about God that we didn't know. Like, He does not cast away the poor in spirit. Actually, He's yearning for individuals that have messed up lives. I know that from experience. People that are selfish, manipulative, insecure, and have all sorts of attributes that if we really knew things about people we probably wouldn't want to hang out with them we probably wouldn't want to be their friends but God reaches out in love towards us I'm going to tell you the story of a man in the Old Testament who had been uh, tremendously favored he grew up being picked on he was the last of his brothers and he got picked on always you know hand-me-downs and he was always given the tasks nobody else wanted and one day this prophet shows up into his house he wasn't there his name is Samuel and after going through all of his brothers and God saying no the prophet finally said um, this is this little guy named David David was taking care of sheep which was one of the most menial things anyone could be assigned to do and being the youngest brother he was given that task nobody else wanted to do God had tremendous mercy on him and David got to see how God could take note of a little guy, an unnoticed person, and call that person to the king of Israel. What an amazing experience to go from a nobody to ruling the nation of Israel. David had received tremendous privileges indeed. And yet in the height of this, after God had delivered him, after God had done amazing miracles for him, 
David does something horrible. The, the Bible tells us that one night David was in his terrace. It's like the roof of a house. Our, our houses here in North America are built for snow. But if you see houses in the Caribbean and most parts of Central America, they're flat. And many of them make use of that roof as a second floor with, uh, with no ceiling. And they have birthday parties and things like that up front. My cousin used to do that in their house in Argentina. Well, David is just in his palace walking in the terrace, looking around the city, and all of a sudden he notices this lady taking a bath. Her name was Bathsheba. And instead of going back and not looking, he keeps staring and begins to covet and begins to desire. And he, he asks for her, who, who is she? And they tell her, this is Bathsheba, the wife, King, King David, emphasis on wife of one of your soldiers named Uriah, one of your faithful soldiers who fights your battles. And the servants are getting nervous because they understand why David is asking. And they're hoping that with this emphasis on she's married, she's not just married to anyone, she's married to one of your loyal soldiers, that that would help David deter for pursuing a path that would be impure, toxic. But inside of David, a storm is raging. Similar storm that we saw in the news, Harvey, Irma, Maria, and the many others um, that we've seen throughout history, uh, Hurricane Hugo several years ago. Well, something similar to that is taking place inside of David's heart. And he decides to start making very poor choices. He sends for her, irrespective of what he knows about her. He crosses that boundary. And then he obviously has sex with her. And after having sex, he sends her back, thinking, wow, you know, it's good to be the king. You guys have to have so much power. Nothing is denied to you. And he begins to ignore his conscience. He begins to ignore the fact that he has forgotten. He is spiritually poor. He needs God. He cannot reign. He cannot do anything without God uh, helping him out in his life. And so, now David gets a message from her a couple of weeks after that saying, hey, I, I've, um, I'm pregnant. And now David is thinking, man, this thing is complicated. How can I solve this? And instead of coming forward and apologizing, and I don't know, I don't know how you could have solved that, but he could certainly have gone to God and said, you know, I made a big mess. How can I fix this? He decides to get uh, Uriah off this battlefield and tell him to go and have, you know, a little celebration with his wife, compliments of the king. And uh, Uriah it doesn't. He feels so uh, tied, so attached to the battle, to the war, and his fellow soldiers that are out there risking their lives. He almost feels guilty doing this. How could I be here with my wife enjoying myself when my comrades are risking their lives for our safety, for our peace? No, I should be out there. David catches wind of this, and instead of yielding to the noble character and, and recognizing, wow, I'm dealing with someone that I used to be like, but I'm starting to turn, turn into a, this scoundrel, this sewage inside the impurity inside of David's heart begins to spill out further and further, contaminating more and more of his heart, his being. So David gets Uriah drunk, hoping that that will you know, cloud his judgment just enough so that he will go ahead and, and sleep with his wife and then he can say, hey, the baby was yours. But Uriah, even drunk, cannot be 
dissuaded from partaking on this, which he could legitimately have, but because his comrades are risking their lives, he will just have none of it. So Uriah, so Uriah won't, and David finally gets upset that he is not cooperating with his plan. So David does the unimaginable. He writes a letter, and in that letter he says to the commander that will be leading Uriah's platoon, and he tells the commander, the soldier that you received this message from, put him in the front lines and send him at where the battle is the hottest, where there is the greatest risk, and send the troops, his troops charging, but give the secret signal that they are to withdraw, except for him. And the man receiving this letter gets disgusted. David is getting him to do the dirty work, but he's the king. But he's lost so much respect. He's lost so much of what God had given him. People loved David, but they're starting to see that there's sewage inside this man. There's, so, there's such impurity in his heart. So he does this, and Uriah dies in the battle. And as soon as Uriah finds out, Bathsheba does this superficial mourning, and this is all a, a facade and a charade. And when the funeral time is over, the grieving time is over, David marries Bathsheba feeling he's done the right thing. What does God think about all of this? Well, he sends this prophet named Nathan, and he tells David a story that pierces David to the heart about a man that had many sheep in his uh, fold. He could have had any of them for dinner, but he has guests come over, and instead of taking one from his own herd, he looks at this other man, his neighbor, who only has one little lamb whom he loves and he cares for dearly. And he takes that lamb, steals it, and cooks it and eats it and serves it to his guests. And when David hears this, he's just so indignant. From this lamb, he says, comes to the conclusion, that man is worthy of death. And Nathan says, that man is you. David at that point recognized this, how merciful God has been to him. He gets a glimpse of the tremendous sewage pool inside his heart how much has just gone out of control inside of him and he cries out i have sinned i have sinned against god at that moment he feels his spiritual poverty he mourns what he has done he regrets he hungers and thirsts for justice needed not justice deserved he knows he deserves to die but he's pleading with for mercy and god says those that hunger and thirst for justice needed will be filled so now David is, has experienced God's mercy. And there's a psalm that he wrote. And this psalm is such, well, it's one of my favorite ones. It's called Psalms 51. Now I want to share a special verse from that psalm when we come back. Psalms 51 verse 10, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steady, steadfast spirit within me. That whole psalm, if you read it in your Bibles, you'll see that David wrote it after this whole mess with Bathsheba took place. He regretted what he did so much. He yearned for God's forgiveness so much. He got to see, as if for the first time, how much sewage, how much dirt, how much pollution really was inside his heart. And because he was not um, careful, 
the storm got out of control. He made no preparations and the storm swept his entire being and he found himself guilty of murder, adultery, theft, and covetousness, everything, idolatry, you name it. And David saw the enormity of what he had done. So it's a blessing. David experienced happiness. Psalms 32, he talks about that and he begins with, Blessed is the man whom the Lord forgives. Happy is the man who experiences purity of heart. Not simply because your guilt has been removed, not simply because now you recognize how much um, you need God and you definitely want to be way more careful the next time. What David got to see was a side of God he had never seen before. God should have destroyed him. God should have, God should, could have rightfully destroyed, sent a lightning bolt, sent fire, uh, whatever. However, God would have chose to do it so that David would have perished. But God was merciful, patient. And David got... Sorry about that. Uh, David got to see God. David got to see something about God he had never seen before. So he wrote this psalm about forgiveness, about the need of inner purity. So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, it's not individuals that are trying really hard to be pure. It's individuals that come to Christ, God, and say, there's some stuff inside of me I did not know was there. They didn't realize how manipulative I am. Wow. And I don't recognize it. I don't realize how quickly I begin to covet. I become discontented with what I have and I need to constantly be buying new things. And, and I didn't understand why that comes from, where that comes from. But it's just this built-in inability to be happy with what I have. I covet continually. Take this sewage out of me, Lord. Grant me happiness. People that, that are constantly coveting never experience happiness. Because well, the happiness is fleeting. They get something new and it only lasts as long as the novelty is. And God doesn't want us to have our happiness dependent on outward superficial things. He wants us to be happy because when we look inside, the water we have is not that sewage water, but the water of life. Remember from that episode, the woman on the well, that Jesus says that the water that Jesus could give her would satisfy her and he would become inside of her a spring of water of everlasting life. Which leads us to the next one. This ability to see God enables us to begin to describe God to others in right terms. When I first would tell people about God, I would tell people something like, He's good to good people, and to bad people, He punishes. That was my definition of the Gospel. God does good things to good people, but to bad people, He, he just doesn't bless them. But then I began to read the Bible, and I found out that I had no clue. And part of it was my heart was impure. My heart, I did not acknowledge, nor did I recognize the pollution inside of me. But once I did, and I began to experience, as we said before, that delicious baklava, divine baklava of forgiveness, now I had something real to say about God. Not real in the sense just of my real experience, but something that describes the reality of who God is. This is who God really is. He does not want to destroy us. He does not want to see us perish. He does not want to see us suffer under the consequences of selfishness and pride. He wants, us, he wants to cleanse us and purify us. And so we get to see things about Him that we didn't see before. 
In turn, this begins to affect how we talk to others about God. And the next beatitude says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is not simply those individuals that when two friends are fighting, they'll get between them and get them to make up. I mean, yes, of course, a, a Christian would do those things, but that's not what Jesus is speaking about. In the context of where he's going with this, he is consistently referring to the relationship between God and human beings. And in this context, Jesus is speaking about those individuals that after having experienced an accurate revelation of who God is through Scripture and personal experience, not just a head knowledge, but a personal heart experience, when they talk to others about God, their description of God will be true. And as they begin to define God for who He really is, just like David did in Psalms 51, in Psalms 32, and many others, when people begin to hear that, they are, number one, shocked, surprised, pleasantly surprised to learn that God would never reject them. They are certain that He would, but the Gospels continually mention that Jesus, the people that He was rejoicing would follow Him, and the majority of them were crooked tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus got accused because that was the crowd that followed Him. The crowd that the church, the synagogue, would have never welcomed, Jesus did. And so you begin to encourage people with the idea that it doesn't matter what you have done. This is a reality. There is nothing you could have done or are doing that could stop God from loving you or that would diminish the love God has for you. Could God really love me? Could God still love me? It's especially hard for those individuals that uh, one time had a religious experience and they experienced a tremendous fall in their lives, just like David. Um, so it doesn't have to be someone that was deep into non-religion, atheism, or known spirituality. You could be individuals that have had tremendous experiences with God, missionaries, pastors, pastor's kids, um, who have grown up knowing about God, and then all of a sudden, things go south. Um, God still loves you. God has not given up on you. Now, the, the next beatitude says, Blessed are the peacemakers, peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. These go together. When uh, David recognizes the purity that is in his heart is due to God's effort and God's work in his life, and through that he gets to see who God really is throughout this whole journey, how faithful, how committed, how tender, how compassionate, and how patient God has been with him. David, as I said before, now is willing to teach sinners God's ways and that sinners would repent and return to God. Now, individuals that repent and turn to God, at one time, were at war with God. I remember taking a class on the sanctuary while I was in seminary. And one of my professors, Gidi Moscala, had a picture, a graphic, that just gripped my imagination. To this day, I still uh, am amazed at how simple that illustration was and yet how much of what I thought about God that picture corrected. It was all stick figures. It wasn't no Michelangelo painting. Um, it was just stick figures. And this, in this stick figure, you had different options. You had a big stick figure representative of God, a medium-sized stick figure in the middle, and um, smiling, and then 
a small stick figure scared, with a face that was scared. And of course, in this illustration, you had God the Father angry at the sinner, Jesus in the middle trying to calm the Father down and trying to talk the Father into forgiving the sinner, and the sinner being terrified throughout this whole process. And he said, no, this is the view of God from medieval religion, from um, the medieval church, the Catholic church. God the Father is so angry, so wrathful against sin, and so Jesus has to calm him down. And actually, we need all the Virgin Mary and all the saints to calm God the Father down because he's just so wrathful at us sinners. Well, he says, this picture is wrong. It's not from the Bible. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So though it doesn't have explicitly the title, it is implied that this God that so loved the world that he gives willingly his only son is God the Father. So that's when he came with his second picture. And in the second picture, we see that large stick figure depicting God smiling. And then that second picture, medium-sized picture, smiling. And then the small picture, the one that represented a sinner that was at one time with a fearful face, he now has the angry face. He is the one now angry at God. And I, I, I did not expect that part to be so that the, the sinners were angry at God, but the Bible just defines us correctly. We are angry because sin distorts who we see God. Like when this Harvey hit Texas, I read an article in the newspaper about a, a gentleman living in Texas and looking at, he had just been looking at the news of the, the fires in Montana and now Texas was, you know, huge parts of Texas destroyed with this flood. And, and in this news article, he said, God must be angry at us. Look at what is happening. And society, our culture, is bent on causing us to think this way about God. If you ever looked at your insurance, your um, warranty for your cell phone, it says that it will cover, you know, drops sometimes, you know, a little sprinkle of water. But it will, what it will not cover is if your phone is damaged because of flood, hurricanes, lightning, earthquakes. And it calls those, it defines those acts of God. We are blaming God. And of course, people will come to the conclusions that when mom gets a diagnosis of cancer and we pray and mom dies, God must be angry. He must be punishing us because of our sins. And we're angry. And humanity is angry, wrathful at God, at the idea of God. And so God is seeking to reach individuals that are at war with him. We are angry at him. But then we have these individuals who have experienced his righteousness, who have tasted his mercy. And these individuals now can speak to sinners, can speak to people angry at God, and lead them to go to God and experience peace make peace, no longer be at war against the one that loves them. To me, this is such a beautiful progression and I never really understood the magnitude of this experience and it leads to us sharing our experience with those closest to us, the reality of who God is, the reality of what God has done for us and with the hopes that others may experience the same journey we are on. The journey in which humility grows, distrust of ourselves grows, appreciation of God grows. But above all, there is this deep gratitude 
this deep gratitude for the mercy received and it leads us to seek to experience this peace we now have for others to have as well. Blessed are the peacemakers because they shall be called the sons of God. I want to be God's child. I pray you will make that choice too. Till next one, God bless.